church? Hell no. Are you no longer feeling comfortable in church? This podcast is for individuals who are desperately missing God, but don't know how to find Him. Substance abuse, domestic violence, sex offenses, acrimonious divorce can contribute to discomfort in the church. For these individuals, church is just not an option anymore. Ordained minister Dennis Hall and his guests invite you to listen to this podcast for topics that are inspiring, uplifting, and will bring hope to those who just feel church is not relevant in their lives today. I'm Dr. Dennis Hall, and I am delighted that you're listening to this podcast today. Uh, You know, we're still in the middle of the Christmas season, and there are so many things about this time of the year that are so wonderful. And one of the things that I still enjoy is getting Christmas cards. I know Christmas cards are not as big as they were uh, when I was a kid. My mother used to send Christmas cards to everyone in our family, the distant cousins, uh, uh, people we haven't seen in years, and then all her friends. It was it was a big ordeal sitting around the kitchen table with her addressing uh, Christmas cards and putting the uh, stamps on them. And to this day, I still enjoy getting Christmas cards, even though I know it's not as big a thing as it used to be with all of our communication uh, capabilities today. I got a Christmas card uh, this year, uh, and uh, that was special among all the Christmas cards that I received. All of them were special, but this one kind of stood out. Uh, My grandson and his wife, the oldest grandson sent me a Christmas card and it had a photo of their baby on the Christmas card. And the baby was beautiful. He had such uh, uh, inquisitive eyes and a twinkle and a joy in his eyes. It was just wonderful uh, looking at this Christmas card of this little uh, child. And, you know, it, uh, it caused me to begin to think about a part of the Christmas story that uh, a lot of people don't even discuss. And so I wanted to spend a few minutes today sort of looking into this. At, uh, <clears throat> you know, on the podcast last week, I spoke about that wonderful part of the Christmas story told in Matthew 2 about the Magi, the wise men, who came to Jerusalem from the east following a star to find Jesus, the baby Jesus. The wise men uh, told everyone that they were looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Now, this must have startled Herod the Great, who was a Jewish man who had been appointed king of the Jews in that region by the Roman emperor. You know, Herod, when he heard this, and that the wise men had approached him asking, if he knew where the king of the Jews, the newborn king of the Jews was, well, the first thing Herod did was he consulted the priests and the scribes and the scholars around him, and they quoted the Old Testament prophecy that said the Messiah, the Christ child, would be born in Bethlehem. You know, this is sort of where it becomes, the story becomes evil and corrupt, and it causes a lot of people to shy away from this part of the uh, Christmas story. You know, Herod uh, met with the wise men and 
And um, he confirmed that the uh, Christ child was in Bethlehem. And he said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So the wise men left, and soon they found the Christ child. They presented their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and bowed down and worshiped him, and I'm sure had a, a, a wonderful, divine kind of visit with this newborn child and, uh, and uh, the mother. Um, now, the scripture tells us that after their visit, though, they were divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod and that they should depart for their own country by a different route. Now, the story goes, in the meantime, and Matthew tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. That means kill him. So when he arose, he took the young child and his mother and by night departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod. And uh, that was so that it, the uh, Old Testament prophecy would be filled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. And now, if you know anything at all about <clears throat> uh, the history uh, surrounding this man known as Herod the Great, he was a paranoid, evil, ruthless ruler. He had three of his sons executed, one of his wives killed, a mother-in-law and two brother-in-laws all killed. He was someone to be feared in this land. Now, when Herod heard about the rival king of the Jews being born, today we would probably say he freaked out. He sort of went crazy. And the scripture has an interesting thing to say right there. The scripture says, and everyone with him. And that means the leadership of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas were with him. Somehow some corrupt leadership there in Jerusalem. So obviously I'm sure he concluded something's got to be done. We can't, uh, you know, we can't stand this. And so, uh, he tried to get information from the wise men, but after they had this divine instruction, the wise men, that is, uh, they left town on the back roads. They outwitted uh, Herod. And so Herod had no clue where the new rival king was. So this paranoid, evil man did the only thing he could think of, and that is he ordered his soldiers to go into the region around Bethlehem and kill all the young male children under two years old. This was his solution to getting rid of Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, 
this event also uh, fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This has always been sort of a, uh, a startling part of the birth of Jesus for me. We don't know how many young uh, male children were slain by Herod's soldiers in the Bethlehem area. I've seen estimates as low as it may have only been 20 or 30 uh, children. And then I've seen estimates as high as 14,000 children. You know, the early church considered these slain children Christian martyrs, um, re, you know, considered saints, referred to as the holy innocents. Now, typically, a martyr is someone who dies for their faith. But in this case, the church considers these children martyrs because of their innocent relationship with God. Now, we can't even imagine, I don't think, the pain and the wailing that must have been occurring in Jerusalem as these soldiers sought out and executed these little children, two years old and under, the male children, two years old and under. So we really can't help but ask the question, why did not God intervene? Why did not God intervene? I mean, in his son's own ministry, uh, Jesus said, suffer unto me the little children. But, you know, there are several places in the scripture where we read in the death of children, about the death of children, and it offends our moral sensibilities. You know, in Deuteronomy, uh, we read about God directing the Hebrews to kill all the Canaanite clans who were living in the land. The destruction was to be so complete that every man, woman, and child was to be killed. In fact, the book of Joshua tells the story of Israel carrying out God's command, city after city in Canaan. And then in Genesis 18, we read about God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because Abraham could not even find 10 righteous people. Uh, God completely destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and that would have included the children. And what about the great flood where only Noah and his family were spared? Why did the flood come? Because of the sins of mankind. And again, we have to conclude that many children perished. You know, throughout history, uh, multitudes of innocent children have perished due to the evil of mankind. You know, when I visited the Holocaust Museum in Washington, I was struck by the display of piles of victims' shoes at Hitler's gas chambers. Many of these shoes obviously belong to children. Now, as I sit here and reflect on uh, 
all these catastrophic events that have killed children. I can't overlook the violence that's occurring here in the streets of America, where innocent children are constantly being killed. And then we come back to that question, why does God not intervene? You know, well-known Christian apologist William Lane Craig put it this way. He said, we have no right to take an innocent life. That would be murder. But God has no such prohibition. He can give and take life as he chooses. Now, we all recognize this when we accuse some authority who presumes to take life as, quote, playing God, unquote. You see, God is under no obligation whatsoever to extend our lives for another second. If he wanted to strike us dead right now, that's his prerogative. In other words, God has the right to allow the end of life for everyone on earth, including children. So we can sort of come back to the Christmas uh, uh, story and the questions that it raises. Why would God let this happen to the children of Bethlehem? Now, it's difficult for us to comprehend uh, why God, who passionately loves children, why he would allow them to die. You know, on this side of heaven, we may never fully, fully understand the purpose of a child's death. However, God's word comforts us with the promise that we will see our loved ones again and their salvation is secure in the blood of Christ. You know, from the writings of American evangelical pastor David to Jeremiah, let me address a common question, and that is, do all children go to heaven? Now, the scripture reveals to us that God judges children differently than he judges an adult. Anyone who is old enough to know right from wrong is said to have reached the age of accountability. Now, that means they'll have to answer to God for their actions. Those who are too young to understand the consequences of their choices are considered innocent. You know, a scriptural example of this is in the book of Deuteronomy, where we find a an unbelieving generation of Israelites being prevented from entering the promised land, but their children were exempt from that penalty. Now, other scripture verses, such as Jeremiah 2.3 and 19.4, refer to young children as innocents, indicating that God treats their their, uh, naive, sinful desires differently than the willful uh, sinfulness of mature adults. Now, you can think of it this way. You know, when a a teenager defiantly says no to his parent, uh, the consequences are that there will be some discipline. But when that teen's two-year-old brother says no, the consequences are different. Instead of discipline, a two-year-old 
receives patient correction and instruction. He'll be taught to learn respect for his parents, something that a teenager should already know. In other words, there's a difference in accountability between a young child and an adult. You know, Psalms 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all. Tender mercies are over all his works. God's goodness and mercy will not allow him to hold children responsible for a decision they cannot yet make. So, children who are too young to understand, you know, the gospel message and um, understand the teachings of Jesus are covered by the blood of Christ. You know, I think we can accept the fact that we live in an evil, broken world where children perish in morally offensive ways all the time, actually. No one seems to know where evil came from or where it began. But in the Old Testament, we meet a figure called the Satan. The word means the accuser. And in the opening chapters of Job, uh, this figure appears as some kind of a junior minister in uh, God's heavenly court. He asked permission uh, to put Job into a position where he was convinced he would offend God. Well, uh, that's not exactly what happened. You know, uh, uh, Job does many things, but he doesn't offend God in the way that Satan was expecting him, that is, cursing God. We meet him again in First Chronicles 21, moving David to conduct a census. And he shows up as the accusing figure in Zechariah 3.1. <clears throat> we first meet him in Genesis 3 as a serpent tempting Adam and Eve. You know, the apostles... Uh, Paul and John both confirmed that this snake is Satan. In Luke 10, 18, Jesus himself acknowledges seeing Satan cast out of heaven as a falling angel. And we're told in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan can masquerade as the prince of light. No, he's not some devil running around in a red suit with a long tail. Sometimes he's very difficult to recognize. He is a cunning being. You know, it seems like Satan is some kind of non-human uh, ex-angel who comes to earth opposed to mankind and Jesus. You know, the most uh, famous and best known uh, satanic scene in the Bible surely is the temptation of Jesus by Satan in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. You know, uh, N.T. Wright, in his book, Evil and the Justice of God, points out that Satan's goal is the death of humans and, in fact, the death of creation itself. You know, Satan has chosen to bring the world and humans to death by sin. You know, sin is mankind's rebellion against God by refusing to worship God, the Creator, and accepting idolatry of the secular world. You know, the biblical picture of Satan is a, a non-human, non-divine force 
bent on attacking and destroying creation in general and humankind uh, in particular. And above all, thwarting God's project of remaking the world and human beings in and through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we speak of spiritual warfare in the world. Uh, the scripture tells us that Satan and his minions are real. So therefore, no matter how much we pray or express our faith or energetically pursue following Jesus, there's a negative satanic force that will be working against us. So human lives full of promise and beauty, laughter and love, will eventually be cut short by illness and death. But the good news is God promises to do for the whole world and his followers, including innocent children, what he did for Jesus at Easter. Now, earlier in this podcast, I referred to Herod as evil. You know, in an article by Gregory Granzel, he points out that when we call something bad or evil, we're expressing, at the very least, a, re a rejection of that thing. And you know, when we call something evil, we're saying that there's something really wrong with it. That there's something wrong with Herod killing the children. And you know, we have a sense that this should not have happened. And in the same article, he points out that Christianity really requires for evil to exist. You know, if evil doesn't exist, uh, we would know that Christianity is false. You know, in addition, Christianity requires a, it requires a, a great deal more than just a superficial amount of evil. Uh, evil has to be so significant that the highest sacrifice is warranted and justified. The, you know, the incarnate birth of Jesus that we're celebrating this time of year is a story of God entering the world and eventually paying the highest price to deal with the root of evil. You know, God became human in Jesus. And he took on himself the results of human sin. It should be apparent to all of us that God went to great lengths to solve the root issue, excuse me, the root issue of evil in this world. You know, if evil didn't exist or if it was just a, a minor part of reality, um, then the Christian story would be false. Thus, yes, the killing of innocent children is evil and should be prevented. But this kind of evil is critical to the expansion of God's kingdom on earth. Let me tell you a story about the famous evangelist D.L. Moody that puts all of this in perspective, I think. You know, when he was ministering in Colorado Springs, <clears throat> he received a message that his little grandson and namesake 
had died. And from his grieving heart, Moody wrote home saying, you know, in those days, they couldn't just pick up a telephone or uh, send a text message or call someone on their cell phone. So D.L. Moody wrote home. And this is what he wrote. He said, I know Dwight is having a good time and we should rejoice with him. What would the mansions be without children? He has gone to get things ready for his parents. You know, the master said, the last shall be first. He was the last to come into our circle, and he is the first to go up there. So safe, so free from all the sorrow that we are passing through. I do thank God for such a life. It was nearly all smiles and sunshine. What a glorified body and what joy. He will await your coming. You will have the dear little man with you for ages and ages. The word that keeps coming to my mind is this. It is well with the child. Now, as I close this podcast, uh, let me just say to the leader, uh, to the listeners, as you read this Christmas story, don't overlook this part of it where these innocent children were slain by this evil man, Herod the Great. And just as D.L. Moody said to his children, I say to you, it is well with those children that were slain by Herod. Uh, because they were innocent children and well below the age of accountability, God granted them immediate salvation, free from the pain and sorrow of this world. It would be impossible to even calculate the impact that that event of the killing of the innocents by Herod has had on Christianity. It's an important part of the history of the birth of Jesus. You know, God sent his son Jesus into the world to deal with evil. And he's calling on us to confront evil by trusting in him. May all of you have a Merry Christmas this year, and thank you so much for listening to this podcast.